know what that means? Everything. Anglo-thieves. Gettle's gone. Oh my god, you people have just failed me. Failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland. We have just gone full and welcome to episode 41 yes yes that sounds right 41 of angle fees where we're going to be talking about three things huh you'll see what i did there in a minute hi i'm raiden i'm sorry i'm not i'm not sorry at all <laughs> i'm alina <laughs> and i'm kaylee so today we're going to be talking about the three musketeers and um, I'm going to admit right now that I'm a terrible person, um, and I've never read it in English or French, which is good because my French reading skills are not good. I've read it in Russian, and it was many years ago. <laughs> but I did. I was a little kid, and I powered through it because I really liked the movie and don't remember too much about the books. Mm-hmm. Actually, the I think this is probably not unusual, but the one I remember best is the one I liked the least, or had the most like characters pissing me off, I guess. Interesting. Which is the last one, the uh, the Vicomte de Cajelon about Athos's son. I didn't even know there was that one. Do they have that movie in English? Um, maybe. So there's there's three novels. There's the three. There's D'Artagnan and the Three Musketeers. Uh, then there's 20 years later, and then there's unofficially 10 years later, uh, which is about Athos's son, Louise de la Valliere, who I believe is a historical mistress of Louis XIV, is there, Athos's like, love interest whom he loses to the king. And that's the book that also includes the Man in the Iron Mask bit. Okay. And I didn't know this until I brought it up on Wikipedia, but there is actually a name to talk about all three books at once. It's called the D'Artagnan Romances. I see. Oh, there's a Russian 2013 film. Yeah, I, I've heard that they've been, just like with Sherlock Holmes and you know all the old Russian favorites, they've been remaking them or like relaunching them, but I'm not going to bother. You can't improve on perfection. Well, you know... I said that about Pride and Prejudice, and then I ended up loving the 2005 movie to bits, so. That's true. I'm just saying. I mean, I mean it, it doesn't always work out well, but sometimes it does. And sometimes it's just sort of like, well, that happened. I have no faith in new Russian cinema. No, that's legit. So there's no way they've tried to turn a new Free Musketeers movie into a giant anti-Putin allegory? Because I'd watch that. <laughs> just a sus oh, suspicious bald villain that's just sneaking around on a horse. <laughs> Conveniently shirtless. So would that make Putin Richelieu? Or Louis yeah, the whatever? Oh, that would make sense. I'd watch that. Yeah. Or both. Well, you know how Leonardo DiCaprio both. said he wanted to play Putin in a movie and he was in The Man in the Iron Mask? Yeah, it fucking lines up now. 
I love it. I love it. I love it. Hollywood, call us. <laughs> Pay us lots of money Oscar for this idea. We're trademarking it right now. Exactly. Oscar, please. <laughs> okay, so no, I have not read the books. I didn't but either. I have uh, watched <laughs> most of the movies. I just realized just now while we were talking that I never did see the 2001 Musketeer Wuxia inspired ridiculousness, which Wikipedia politely calls it loosely based on. It's a reimagining. <laughs> oh, I've seen that one. That's the one. It's got Catherine Deneuve as the uh, as the queen, and Justin Chambers. Oh, I have I I remember nothing except. There was a scene where they're escorting the queen somewhere in the sewers, and she's like, careful about the alligator. And they're like, it's not a myth. She's like, oh no, like it escaped and now lives here. <laughs> that is, was that not the movie that had the giant underwater lake scene that was filmed in Austria? And like the boat's still there because I was there when we were in Austria with my mother. And I believe that's, that's the movie. There's um, a giant underground like water reservoir, a lake. And because of its kind of unique categories the water's so clear and the lake is big enough to allow you know quite a few people and equipment and, and everything um they wanted a scene where like a little barge on the lake swims i think it, it was up to like the cardinal's palace or something like a secret entrance so they filmed it down there but they built the boat down there and it was too big to bring it back up so it stays down there and uh now when the when the tourists go one of the things you can do you can actually i think like you can see where the boat is from the movie, from the Musketeers movie. It's delightfully dorky. I want to say this is the. Oh, you know what? No, I'm wrong. That's not the one. It's from the Disney production. Yeah. I haven't seen the Disney production in a long time. I love the Disney production. It's objectively terrible, but I don't care. <laughs> okay, I would say that the uniting line between all the Musketeers production is that they're objectively terrible, yet very entertaining. I- I'm sorry. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold up. Hold up. Hold up. Are you saying that the BBC Musketeers series is objectively terrible? Because I'm going to fight you on that. Okay. First of all, it's objectively not so much an adaptation as let's use the character names. Which I have no problem with because I love the BBC production. Okay, you're you're right about that. So now that we've sort of rambled around and hit all of the greatest hits, except for the the 2011 Musketeers, which was amazing. Not good, but amazing. <laughs> Where should we start? I kind of want to start with the 2011 one because, well, for one thing, it has Mass Mikkelsen. Yeah, yeah, and Christoph Waltz. And Christoph Waltz and Matthew McFadyen and Ray Stevenson. And it was sort of our first introduction to Luke Evans. And you forgot Mila Jovich and Orlando Bloom. I have not forgotten. I was just working my way to them. Oh, Orlando. On a purely (laughs) aesthetic level, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. I mean, I, I spent the first time I saw the movie, because I own it. Of course I own it. I spent the first time I watched it being, like, legitimately worried for Orlando Jones, or Orlando Bloom's teeth. Because of all the scenery he was chewing. 
Like, Christoph Waltz is a, is a scenery chewer. But he just sort of... He can nibble delicately or take big chomps out of it. He can, you know, modify his range. When Orlando decides that he's going to chew the scenery, he just goes balls to the wall. See, I like that Orlando Bloom. It makes a marked improvement from, like, Paris of the Caribbean or Lundel Bland. Mm. I love that subplot of, for some reason, Louis is so jealous of Orlando Bloom's wardrobe. <laughs> he plays, Orlando Bloom plays Buckingham. So he's so jealous of his wardrobe. <laughs> I mean, it's a movie where you could legitimately put, on Wednesdays we wear pink, yeah. into any part, any scene, and it would work. <laughs> <laughs> because th- this is the movie in which the Duke of Buckingham arrives in Paris on a flying ship. Mm-hmm. And then, like, turns up his nose at all the provincial fashions in Paris. Yes. Once again, I see no problem here. No, not at all. <laughs> like, Paul W.S. Anderson is an objectively terrible filmmaker, but he does fun. Mm. I feel like he just likes, he looks for excuses to make films at exotic locations that him and his wife Mia Jovovich can go on holiday to. Which, once again, really sweet deal. Yeah. Like, wouldn't you if you were in their shoes? Just. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it works out better for the world than when Adam Sandler decides he wants to go on vacation. Because that's how we get things like pixels. Yeah, we got that bullshit, but we couldn't get a Three Musketeers sequel with an army of flying ships. Right. Come on. Like, some of us are not over the fact that we're not going to get a Man from Uncle sequel either. It's just something we have to live with. Because that movie's the best. It really is. Isn't it? Okay, I have to ask, because I'm not that familiar with Three Musketeers. Like, I I get the basic story. It's one of those things that's not quite as saturated in general pop culture as something like Dracula or Frankenstein, but it's always there for the the public domain taking. Why are you such a big fan of it, Alina? Uh, Absolutely, the Russian movie. So it was uh, made, the first one was made in 1978, and kind of a mainstay on, you know, replays on TV and things like that. So when I saw it, I was a kid, and it's just so much fun. Like, I read the books strictly because I love that movie, and I thought, well, if I love the story and it, it can't be on TV every day, <laughs> I'll just read the book. Um, I, I thought, should we run down the story really quick for anybody who hasn't maybe watched? Well, a lot of the movies don't really have the... Right. <laughs> well, that's the thing is, it's kind of like Dracula in that aspect. You'll take the characters, but you will not go near that plot. Pretty much, but we can do. Uh, I can do a really quick rundown. So, it's called D'Artagnan and the Three Musketeers. So, D'Artagnan is a young boy who's traveling to Paris to become he, with the dream of becoming a musketeer. Uh, he runs into Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. Uh, manages to provoke all three of them into a duel, <laughs> and then they all show up to the same place to like duel to the death, which is illegal at that time, and they have to fight off the cardinal's guards instead. Cardinal Richelieu is in this the main antagonist. So, you know, let's take the person who historically had to run the country over an incompetent king and just make him a usurper <laughs> of royal power. Okay. The king is Louis Thirteenth, married to Anne of Austria. And there's a lot of different stories, but kind of the main plot is that the Richelieu is trying to sow discord between the king and queen. And one of the ways he's doing it is asserting that there's an affair between the Queen and the English Duke of Buckingham. 
and there there is and she gave him these uh, I don't know I don't remember the English term but a piece of jewelry like diamonds piece of uh, several diamonds as as a gift and then in order to set her up Rishilio kind of suggests to the king well you should throw the next ball you're throwing you should make you should ask her to wear those that diamonds you gave her so the musketeers have to race to England in order to uh, get the diamonds from the Duke and then back to the Queen. And I think that's just one of one of the big plots, because I think the book is actually in several, like, episodes. If I'm not mistaken, it was one of those published, like, serialized. Mm-hmm. So it didn't necessarily have to have um, a coherent that plot. Coherent, yeah. <laughs> one, some of the other main characters is Milady, Milady de Winter. She's one of Richelieu's, hench- she's a henchwoman. And an antagonist, uh, it's a really seductive uh, young woman who, in a big plot, shocking plot twist, turns out to have been Athos's wife, I suppose legally still is. So when she was 16, she ran away from the monastery or nunnery where she was being raised with the priest. They traveled, sometimes pretending to be brother and sister. At some point, she was captured and branded with the fleur-de-lis as, as a thief. And um, they reached Athos's, whose who's account, they reached his estate where she pretended to be this naive and virginal 16 year old Athos was way older than 16 the priest heard to be her brother and he so fell for her beauty that he married her you know completely believing her story not really knowing anything about her and then somehow they I guess consummated the marriage despite him never seeing her undressed because when there was a hunting party to honor the marriage like her horse ran away and she fell off and, and she was swooning and he was tearing the dress off her like the corset so she could breathe and he sees the brand on her shoulder and realizes that she's besmirched his family name by being a branded criminal. And then he hangs her right there in the woods and goes to be a musketeer in Paris in shame. A.K.A. Athos is a dick. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Milady is kind of, I guess, like she's a put up on character because she is, you know, she schemes for the cardinal and... Um, D'Artagnan's love interest in the book, her name is Constance. She's like a, a maid for the queen. And at some point, I don't even remember why Milady gets so pissed off at D'Artagnan, but in order to get revenge, she kills Constance. So then finally the musketeers capture her. And she does a whole bunch of other things. Finally the musketeers capture her, and rather than having her face actual trial for what she did, they pay an executioner to just kill her. Like, they appoint themselves judge and executioner. Yeah, and, and they kill her. And in... I think in the 20 years later, so in the second novel, her son shows up to seek revenge. And I think it's heavily implied that this is her son by Athos, uh, although never explicitly stated. And eventually they kill him, too. Drama! <laughs> the thir- it, okay, here's a trivia question for you guys. Guess, which of the four main characters is the only one to be alive at the end of the last novel? You've got 25% chance. D'Artagnan? No, D'Artagnan dies. I saw Man in the Iron Mask. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I thought that was based on one of the later books. For... Okay. Um... Yeah, yeah. That is, uh, that, no, that's the actual last bit of the last novel, Man in the Iron Mask. Okay, say that right. I've <laughs> seen one of those notations. I actually don't remember how... Uh, well, it wasn't very original because it implies that D'Artagnan had an affair with the Queen, the, the movie, right? Yeah. I don't think that was... That was oh, it book. didn't imply. I think it... I mean, granted, it's been a really long time since I've seen it. I think it just outright says that. Aramis? You're right. Really? Aramis, 
Yeah. I don't even remember how Porthos dies. Uh, Athos dies in the war alongside his son, not the son by Milady, but there's a different son. Uh, sure. Who, whom the book is named after, the Vicomte de Bregelon. Mm-hmm. And uh, D'Artagnan dies in like a heavily ironic way. He all His ambition throughout, this has been 30 years in military service, has been to become the field marshal of France. And he's, from my childhood memories of reading the book, he gets the field marshal ship. And really, and literally that second, a cannonball thr- flies through the window and kills him. <laughs> That's how I remember it happening. And I'm just, it's just going to stay that way in my memory. I feel like this is like a 1980s pirate romance that Raiden would review for Smart Bitches. That would have a fuchsia and teal cover. Mm, definitely it's not as okay so the romance part especially in this last book is pretty heavy because um you have athos raising his teen his son who's at the beginning of the book a teenager from like a one-night stand actually literally he had with a woman who's it turns out was a mistress of aramis it's a very convoluted <laughs> set of Are there arrows. only like 10 people in france at this point i think it's like 10 yes. women <laughs> <laughs> so there's like three women right. <laughs> but then again if you know how many mistresses Alexandra Dumas apparently had this makes a lot mm. of sense I think he had about 40 or 50 in his lifetime I mean if I could sleep with the man who wrote <laughs> these books I, I, I'm not sure I'd say no <laughs> so uh, Athos is in the third book raising his teenage son and Louise de la Valliere She's, I'm not wrong, she's a historical mistress of Louis XIV, right? Like, she's a woman who actually existed. Okay, but, like, just like Dumas had a whole bunch of mistresses, so did Louis XIV, come on. That's true. I mean, she was one of the first. So, Louise de la Valliere is, is like, uh, is like five years younger, so she's 12 in the beginning, and, you know, I don't remember what the boy's first name is off the top of my head. And he's, you know, 17, and he's still in love with her, and... and what I remember from the very first time he shows up, I think um, D'Artagnan comes to visit, and this young boy is so upset, like he's basically crying. Athos asks him why, and it turns out Louise has like twisted her ankle when they were out playing, and now he, you know, he's dejected, and the adults kind of like, oh, come down, and they do not understand the depths of his suffering. I was just like, oh, I can't with you. Oh, my God. And I couldn't him for the rest of the book. Jesus, he is the emoist white. Like, if I were Louise, I would sleep with Lulu for tooth to get away with him. <laughs> so, in other words, he is definitely his father's son. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and most of the book I, that I remember is just his suffering because Louise has now thrown away her honor and virtue and blah. I mean, the movie uh, The Man in the Iron Mask, the Louis DiCaprio one, does have Louis be fairly predatory. I'm not sure the book was any different. Mm. Yeah, I remember I remember that, and she eventually, in the movie at least, kills herself. Right? Well, you would too if you knew what her actual life was like. Her actual life was that at one point... Uh, after Louis done with her and moves on to the next mistress, he had he had kept her on as a shield so the queen wouldn't find out. So poor Louise had to always be around Louis and the woman he left her for 
just so other people would hate her and call her a whore and leave that woman alone. <sighs> that's that's not even what, that is actually what happened in real life from what I remember. Right, and in France, you wonder why a revolution happened. <laughs> like, come on. Yes, I know there was more to it than that. No, there wasn't. Not at all. <laughs> there was something about cake. I don't know. <laughs> I saw the Supersizers episode. I know. Yeah, yeah. So really, the the first book's, I guess, the fun one. <laughs> just watch the movies. There's so many to choose from. Right. Just watch them all. You'll be happier. You'll be much happier. So I showed you guys a clip of the Russian one. What do you think? Um, the main song, the theme song. It's it's kind of what I've learned to expect from Russian ridiculousness. <laughs> it's a movie musical. There's lots of songs. You know, a couple nights ago, there was that meme going around when Jeb Bush posted that picture of the gun and put America. I feel like you could put that clip of that Three Musketeers movie and then just put Russia above it. <laughs> <laughs> I just I remember all the songs. I still have a few songs like on my music book, like in my musical collection. Particularly the one about Athos killing a lady in the Russian movie. I guess they couldn't find suitable like singing rhymes to hang her on a tree, so they changed it to him drowning her in a pond. Oh, that's much better. Rude. But anything for a rhyme scheme, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, objectively, the 2011 one in the American one that we were talking about earlier is a much more crazy display. Oh yeah. I feel like they were making their own version of the asylum movie of the Free Musketeers. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I mean if we say that the Russian one, you know, is like you could put Russia above it, like surely you could put America above the one that has Porthos use a machine gun off a flying ship. That's very true. Considering the director is from Newcastle. Yeah. I mean, they at least politely give you something to hang your suspension of disbelief on by saying, oh yeah, we uh, we swiped Da Vinci's flying ship plans and then built them. So you can pretend that this <laughs> makes sense. Kind of. Sure, why not? Da Vinci yeah. gives so many excuses to so many filmmakers to just do whatever. Yeah. In any timeline after he was born. It's like, oh, Da Vinci invented it. Everybody accepted it. It's a universally accepted excuse. Da Vinci did it. Right, right. And Da Vinci is in whatever afterlife he's in going, yeah, bitches. <laughs> he's in the same afterlife as after Conan Doyle going, look, they can do whatever the fuck they want. I don't care. <laughs> I was excited about that movie because I will admit, look, I know the Athos Milady story is terrible, but there is a seed for a very angsty romance plot in there. Oh, yeah. And 2011 movie is one of the, the productions that makes use of it because it starts off with them being still happily married. And it's Mila Jovovich and Matthew McFadden, two actors whom I find very pretty. Well, you find them very pretty because they are very pretty. And it also kind of fixes the oh love is terrible oh don't trust anyone with ethos going don't be like me i'm an asshole <laughs> go find your pretty blonde constants and you know bang her into next week 
That is the thing you should do. I'm just going to sit here and be miserable. <laughs> but that's not that's not me being a role model for you, kid. It's it's amazing, but that is literally just ethos in every adaptation and the book. Like sitting, I'm going to sit here and drink and be miserable. Mm-hmm. I. Yep, and that is if, the character everybody gets. Yes, <laughs> and generally he's been cast pretty well. Kiefer Sutherland really works out pretty well in the Disney movie. I mean, the even Charlie Sheen's as Aramis sort of works, kinda. Man, remember when he used to act? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, those weird days. But I think. We can all agree. I mean, and what I'm about to say here is just objective fact. There's nothing to argue about. Is that Portho is the best in all iterations. Absolutely. Because all Porthos is, in all of the sea of angst, Porthos is anti-angst. Yep. Porthos wants to eat, drink, and be merry. Yep. And also get married for money, which he does three or four times. (laughs) I'm sure all of his wife wives died very happy women. Do you know where Porthos is depressed at the start of the second novel? So at this point, he's a widower, third or fourth time. He's got all the money from his dead wives and everything he wants. Mm-hmm. His neighbors won't fight him. Porthos is very sad because he keeps on poaching on their lands and otherwise provoking him. And nobody will punch him in the face. Porthos is sad. Yeah. Porthos wants to punch some more. <laughs> the struggle is real. <laughs> I think that's our episode title. Porthos wants to punch someone. <laughs> yeah, so in the Disney version, Porthos is played by Oliver Platt, who is the best. That is pretty spot on casting. Oliver Platt is a phenomenally talented actor, but he's so good at just like depressed chum drinking guys. <laughs> yes. In The Man in the Iron Mask, he's played by Gerard Depardieu. Who also played Alexandre Dumas in a movie once, despite that whole, you know, Dumas being black thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He was played by Ray Stevenson, who those of you who watched Rome will recognize as Titus Pullo in the 2011 movie. And he was amazing and just generally cheerful and very, very strong. And then Howard Charles, who is, I mean, the the BBC series is, is a lot of fun, but Howard Charles as Porthos is like one of the best bits. <laughs> Except when everyone is going, Aramis, why did you do the thing? Aramis, why are you dumb? Oh, okay. Let's talk about this. Cause the best moment was D'Artagnan. It's like, you could have done that by not sleeping with her. Yeah. I'll give context for the line. <laughs> like, like, when even D'Artagnan is, like, giving you the side eye. Right. When even D'Artagnan is like, you made some bad choices, dude. I mean, in the BBC series, half of the show is Athos going, don't do the thing, and then Aramis doing the thing. The thing often being Queen Anne. Don't be fair. He only did that, like, once or twice once is enough <laughs> once is enough as we find out <laughs> so yeah the bbc show you know what's funny on wikipedia when you go to the adaptations bit they have the one it says 
film adaptations linked to separate page. TV adaptations, well, there was one in like the 70s and then there's the BBC one. Done. <laughs> it's just too big a story. Mm. Which the BBC solved by throwing the story out the window. Yep, pretty much. God bless them for it. <laughs> Yet it has things to recommend it beyond what anybody else what any other like mainstream adaptations have done. So the BBC series pretty much just took the characters and maybe some of the episodes uh, to inspire their own episodes of the show and then just did whatever they wanted. And hey, the cast is not all white. Amazing. Are you amazed? I'm amazed. I was amazed. I was very impressed. Look, you can do a quote, historically accurate end quote TV show. <laughs> they don't all have to be white. But it's the defences of the, the whiteness you hear when it comes to Duma adaptations that's particularly egregious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A it's... black man wrote it, people. Yeah. Like, are you familiar with his dad? His dad was the badass of the time. Well, no, because no one studies French history beyond there's a revolution and something about cake. And maybe somebody will remember, didn't they lock one of the princes up in an iron mask? A movie told me they did. <laughs> True story. My dad genuinely did not, not know Alexandre Dumas was black until that one scene in Django Unchained. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't know until fairly recently. It's just not something they talk about. And you don't see a lot of even portraits, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just kind of, well, you just see the name, but not... That's true, but my dad's reaction was actually similar to Leonardo DiCaprio's in that film. Obviously, way less racist, but... I was like, oh, really? I didn't know that. I was just kind of staring at him. So, the BBC Musketeers. We have <clears throat> Tom Burke as Athos, Santiago Cabrera as Aramis. People will recognize him from... I think Heroes was the first thing he was known for, right? Oh, right. He was the the artist dude who died in the second episode, right? Yeah, yeah, him. And then he was um, Lancelot in Merlin. And then Howard Charles is Porthos, and Luke Pasqualino is D'Artagnan, and that boy has a face so beautiful it makes angels cry. That's true. That's how he got with Lucrezia Borgia in the Borgias, is by being a pretty stable boy. (laughs) (laughs) He needs to be in a museum so people can gaze upon him. That is the most beautiful person I've ever seen. Really? Not even Daniel Day Kim in a very small towel? (laughs) Like that is it's a, a really beautiful small towel, you guys. <laughs> yeah, no, it was tiny. It was so tiny. It's like it's a towel tiny enough to make me look away from his cheekbones. Let me put it that way. <laughs> Luke Pasquini is a different kind of beautiful because it's not like a boy, a man. I look at and go like I sleep with him. No, I just want to look at him. Mm. So pretty. Oh, Peter Capaldi is Richelieu in the first season. I mean, come on. Yep. He does have the most fabulously twirly mustache. Mm. I'm, all, I'm actually and, sad he didn't keep it for Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and uh, Capaldi was clearly having a great deal of fun with the whole thing. Just imagine how much more fun he would have had if he'd been allowed to swear. Just like uh, Malcolm Tucker across with the Three Musketeers. <laughs> I mean, like everything... Capaldi does would probably be better if he were allowed to swear. Mm-hmm. That's true. 
I think they should just make a uh, ratings exemption for Peter Capaldi. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. I guess because this is kind of unique to not the all-white casting, um, maybe we should talk a little bit about how the show treats Porthos being black. Yeah, they don't... They didn't ignore it. Mm-hmm. The first episode where it really makes a difference is, I think, is episode three of the first season, where... Oh, what's the actor's name? It's a it's guy Balter from Battlestar Galactica, right? Like, he shows up and he turns out to be a slave trader. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it's that one. Um, and when... And, the first, like, you don't find out at first. At first, he's, like, just... Try, he says some people are trying to kill me and I was ju- I, I'm a merchant, I have money and the musketeers and I travel in time and help him and then it turns out that he made his money in slave trade and yeah. Um, Awkward. <laughs> Porthos does not take this well. Or rather, Porthos does not take this lying down. Yeah. And and then we find out more about his backstory. So he he doesn't know his father, and that becomes a plot point in later episodes where he finds him. And oh god, like it's I have I've watched this about a year ago, but there was some something about where like the dad's actually using him, and the captain knew him, and it turns out he was either a deserter or a traitor, and he tries to pass some other woman as Porthos's mom because she died when he was little, and mm-hmm. he gives him a portrait of a random woman, but says that's your mother. The poor Porthos. Yeah. But they acted as really well with it, and mm-hmm. I'm glad that the show didn't ignore it, but also like didn't stop it for, didn't let it stop them from you know casting people and not just right. Black people didn't exist in Europe until 1950s. Everybody knows that. So one of the things the show does because it kind of throws the book out the window is that well you know Constance doesn't have to die. Mm-hmm. She and D'Artagnan can actually get together. I like their constants. They they do that kind of modern adaptation update where everybody gets to be a badass. Yes, and Constance's friendship with the Queen and kind of being one of the very few people that the Queen can trust is, I mean, I'm, I'm always a sucker for female friendship. You guys all know that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really good in this one. When they, the Queen... The queen has done really well, and it's uh, when she has that baby with Aramis. That that's the line where Aramis has to uh, confess to the other musketeers that he slept with. He's like, "I have to protect her honor," and D'Artagnan's like, "You could have done that by not sleeping with her." <laughs> we'll find you the gif because the look on his face is just like, I mean, dude. <laughs> So then she has a, the queen has a scene with um, Constance where she goes like now you know all my secrets and it's like the sisterhood. That's cute. Yep. But uh, like I will fully uh, admit that the reason the show captured my heart is because it took the angsty romance that's there between Athos and Milady and just ran with it. He still tries to kill her in this one. Only now instead of you know the let's just hang her on the nearest branch in the woods because I'm angry that she besmirched my family honor by not being an innocent virgin. virgin that I thought she was. They make it so that they were, you know, legit married for a while, and then she was found standing over his brother's corpse and said that she had a reason to, to kill the brother, and nobody believed her, and Athos as the local... Magistrate type of... Yeah, sentenced her to hang. 
only he loved her, so he couldn't stand and watch. So then the she seduced the person actually doing the actual hanging into letting her down. Yeah, but she's got a scar around her neck from where the rope was. It's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Episode five, I think, is the one where they um they show up at Athos's mansion and Athos just like crawls into a bottle right then and there. Mm-hmm. I mean he's already kind of in the bottle through which is also accurate throughout the entire show. And then she shows up and he's like, I'm seeing ghosts. So then they have like almost like a, a romantic re- It's weird. like the show just wallows in the angst. It's great. If you love angsty romance, this one's for you. <laughs> Two seasons of it. It's great. Yeah. And the, the other interesting thing is that the show is also like, look, Athos is a count. He is in charge of this estate. He has people who are relying on him and he's been ignoring his duties so everything is terrible and it's his fault because he can't get his shit together and he's he's sad and it's not it doesn't affect just him mm-hmm. Kaylee, have you seen it i've seen some episodes of it uh one of the downsides of still living at home with your parents is the commandeer control of the television so <laughs> it's like hey this thing looks good and it's like oh no but we're gonna watch football again oh, okay Oh, I really like this. No, you're you're still watching Sons of Anarchy. Okay, I'll just I'll just go upstairs. For listeners in the U.S. and Canada, it is on Netflix. It has been cancelled, right? No, season three. Season three's uh, just been airing, I believe. Let me find it. Or, I think it was supposed to premiere in January, and then they pushed it back. But it is still like it's been filmed. It's been filmed, yeah. I'm only sad because the actress who plays Milady uh, had a had a kid, so she's only going to be in the later episodes. She was still on mat leave for the first few. But we've just had like the angsty semi resolution to their relationship. Come yeah, on, well, show the you know angsty I... semi resolution of of meet me at this place, and then he was late because D'Artagnan had to go and get married or whatever. Yeah, and he was still trying to decide if he was going to go, so he was late. So she th- thought he wasn't coming. So there is no resolution at all. They made a decision, but neither at the time. The timing was terrible. <laughs> and it's pre-cell phone, so you can't text and be like, I'm on my way. I'm just, I'm going to be, I'm sorry. I'm going to be late. Cell phones have just erased 75% of plot lines from TV and movies, haven't they? Yes, but they've added a bunch more. So Richelieu is only in series one, and then by series two they have him die, which happens in the books in that by the second book he's you know, Richelieu did historically die. Literally worked himself to death in the service of France, but no, let's make him the bad guy. Okay. What did you have against him, Dumas? But in the second series, rather than move on to Cardinal Mazarini, the show decides to take Count Rochefort, who was a Richelieu henchman. Isn't that and a I'm... stinky kind of cheese? Yes. <laughs> So it takes Rush 4, whom they left out of Series 1, and just makes him the big bad of Series 2. And it's Mark Warren. And there's more angst because he's so in love with Queen Anne and she's so not in love back with him. And he Stockholm syndromes the king into like cowering in his room, basically. And by the end of the Series 2, he's like stomping around the, the palace, basically ruling France. See, Cardinal Mazarin, why is it always the Cardinal? Did Dumas just have a problem with Catholicism? The Cardinal's always the bad guy. Because in the book sequels, Richelieu's place is taken by Cardinal Mazarin. Now, the king has died. Queen Anne is regent to their son. 
And Cardinal Mazarin, according to the books, I don't remember the actual history, is the one kind of basically ruling the country mm-hmm. and sleeping with the queen. And mostly I just remember it because in the Russian sequels, he, that's kind of the really chewing the scenery, hammy, it's, it's, they, they have fun with it. They have this scene where he's with some of his like cardinal's guards and, and henchmen and a pigeon flies in and poops on him and he's like, kill the dirty animal and one of the guards takes out his gun and for some reason shoots the person Mazarin was talking to. Mazarin's like, why did you do that? For you, Monsignor, I'd kill my own brother. That is very commendable, but I meant the pigeon. <laughs> Welp. <laughs> I don't remember if that was in the actual book. I really hope it was. <laughs> so we'll see who's the villain in Series 3. It might be Mazarin. They also, there's this whole war in England, or with England, or around England, or something. Something. Because in the books, Milady is Milady de Winter because she married an English nobleman of some sort and killed him maybe and his brother's mad at her people are mad at milady a lot in these books not entirely sure she's done half the things they say she's done i mean she did kill constance so i think we're supposed to hate her for that yeah but largely i suspect we're supposed to hate her for being a woman and besmirching athos's honor Mm -hmm. why can we not have a sequel to the flying ships there were flying ships orlando bloom chewed some scenery chewed some scenery and Mila had some really pretty dresses which she still performed ninja moves in Yep, like the floor slide in the beginning that was something see I think the BBC series is in some ways a worthy successor because it does have like secret assassins and also some ninja like moves it also has the court of miracles yeah that episode was fun. Porthos's backstory goes into the seedy underworld of Paris. I'm trying to look up what England and France were fighting about at that point. <laughs> it was so hard to keep track. Yeah, well, I know that stuff you missed in history class, someone built a was England at war with France generator. So you put in a year and it would say yes or no. Oh, yeah, the Anglo-French War of 1627 to 1629. I mean, at that point, aren't they just fighting about being England and France? Basically. It's all they've ever known. (laughs) Is it all Henry II's fault? Probably. I mean, I've read the Eleanor of Aquitaine biography, and that's my understanding is that's vaguely when it started of, like... Well, I mean, France goes and invades England and... 1066 and things kind of go to shit from there yeah i don't even remember what the wars are in like the book is interspersed with military conflict i i don't know that anybody's ever paid attention to military conflicts (laughs) (laughs) that's not what really that's not why you read the swashbuckling adventures of the musketeers i always i also find it amusing because everybody knows it as the three musketeers but there is four main characters but going like d'artagnan and the three musketeers is such a mouthful and that's why the BBC show just went, the Musketeers. Right. Any number of them that we shall need. And generally, most of the general adaptations stop at the point that D'Artagnan becomes a Musketeer. So, and then you have, like, the older movies that I think there's a 60s something of the Four Musketeers. 
I mean, Wikipedia knows a couple of movies in the 60s, but it's still just yeah. three. Most of them just say three. Oh, no, 1974. Ah. Michael York, Charlton Huston, Raquel Welch, hmm, Oliver Reed, Richard Chamberlain, Frank Finlay, and Spike Milligan. It's interesting, but the 80s are the only decade where there were no Musketeers movies. Did the world suddenly fall out of love? Japan made an animated series in the 80s. Look, the 80s were a difficult time. Everybody was on a lot of coke. <laughs> to be fair, the 80s was apparently the time of Dog Tanyan and the Three Musky Hounds. Oh, Perhaps gosh. nobody thought they could top that. Well, I mean, you can't. You can't. You just, you can't. Oh my god, there's a Barbie in the Three Musky... Why? Yeah, and, and the Musketeers are girls, so... Good for them. that. <laughs> Lean in, ladies. Mickey, Donald, Goofy, the Three Musketeers. Mm-hmm. Disney never changed. Was Disney the one of the 2011? No. No, the Disney one was, uh, was the 1993. It was one of the first movies that I saw in the theater without a grown-up. Aww. Yeah, I can't even remember if I've... I've seen that one. Uh, some of the 90s adaptations and like early 2000s kind of blur together. Wait, you, you haven't seen Chris O'Donnell as a very American D'Artagnan? I can't remember. I, I must have. You must have. It's got Tim Curry as Richelieu, who is having the most fun that I've ever seen him have. And I, we've seen Tim Curry have a lot of fun. And uh, Julie Delpy as Constance for like a minute. And Gabrielle Anwar is uh, the queen for like two minutes. There's some random cannonballs going off on the road to Calais. I remember that. So, trivia time. All the musketeers are very loosely based. And by very loosely based, I mean Dumas took their names on actual historical characters. But D'Artagnan, I don't ever, never actually gets a first name in any of the books. Some adaptations call him Charles. I think purely on the fact that the D'Artagn- historical D'Artagnan's first name was Charles. It was a last name only kind of time back then, I guess. Mm. Yeah. For story purposes, kind of like the age of piracy. Like swashbuckling, but on land. Yeah. On horseback. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get another big screen adaptation in, what, about 10 years? They always do. Yeah. Yeah, there's about a 13, 14 year cycle. I mean, they have to more and more have to tone down the uh, let us uh, romance some ladies so they will pay for us to eat and, you know, have somewhere to sleep because <laughs> we are poor musketeers. Mm. But we have our reputations and the ladies love us. Yeah. The BBC show kind of made fun of that for an episode. Mm. Although, personally, like, there's a lot of. Three Musketeers adaptations, not as many of The Count of Monte Cristo. And they're kind of in the same era, I guess I want to say, or yeah. sphere. I wonder. Like, they're also by Dumas. It's also by Dumas. And the only. Russia, of course, had a movie. And the last American one I remember was. Oh, what was the actor's name? Jim Caviezel. Like, yes, thank you. That was like. What, early 2000s? Yeah. And I I loathed it. Like, just completely. What? Okay. They, they got Mercedes 
and his mom, but no, no, Haiti or die. I am. I will stand for Haiti. Haiti's the best. Wasn't she his slave? She was. He found her on a slave market. He, okay, so Haiti is a character. She was an Albanian princess who, after her father, the the Shah, I think is the is the proper title, was betrayed and killed. Her, she and her mother were sold into slavery. And Edmond Dantes, like, had to buy her. And he needed her to testify against the man who, who betrayed her father. So he did, he did pay money, but then he didn't actually, like, own her, so to say. He kind of just gave her money in a house and just, like, look, you can do whatever you want with your life, but I, I need you in Paris to testify to trial. And then he was going to let her go, and she was all miserable. And because he, he couldn't believe that she could truly love him, but she did. And in the end, they sailed the world together. I was young and impressionable, and they will forever be <laughs> one couple. So I was very angry when Mercedes <laughs> was the, the love interest in the 2002 movie. I feel like I shocked you guys into silence. I don't know what it is I did. I love that movie. It's fantastic. I'm ambivalent. I don't like that movie because I, I feel like it just it didn't do... The tale is a viscerally satisfying tale of revenge, and I really did not feel like the movie got that. Like, there wasn't sufficient revenging going on. The film was directed by Kevin Reynolds, who directed Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I feel like that kind of explains that movie. But there's nowhere, there's nothing anywhere near as fun as Alan Rickman in the Monte Cristo film film. That's my problem with it. Hmm. You can't simplify Count of Monte Cristo. Count of Monte Cristo. I feel like that is a mo- that is a book that probably does need like a miniseries at least, because the labyrinthine, like the Xanatos Gambit, of Edmond's plan to completely destroy anybody who's ever looked at him wrong. Now that he's filthy rich, because mm. like the people who end up and like. He punishes people to the level to which they wronged him. Like the the couple who now own an inn and who the only way they wronged, like maybe they testified, like they didn't, they weren't the actual architects of his downfall. So he doesn't straight up kill them. Instead, he just has the, like leaves them this um, ring, I think, like with a gigantic jewel, knowing they'll just kill each other in their greed. And they do. But that was their choice. He just set the, you know what I mean? Like, they didn't entirely, they weren't entirely responsible for destroying him. So he gave them an out of not being greedy bastards and they just didn't take it. And that's not on him. If you don't see it, it's not illegal. <laughs> yeah. Also, the, the the book has, like, it's kind of like the second generation includes a girl, like a teenage girl character who's like, fuck being a girl and dresses as a guy and seduces all the other girls. Movies never include that. There is a really fabulous anime adaptation of The Count of Monte Cristo, but it's set in the year 5053, and it's set on the moon. It's called Gankotsuo, The Count of Monte Cristo, and it's very dreamy. It's so beautifully animated. That one does have a Haiti. It does. But in that version, The Count of Monte Cristo is possessed by a demon... And you can tell he's possessed by the demon because his skin turns blue and he starts speaking French. Because <laughs> French is demonic, I think. I don't know. It's fabulously trippy. And also just melodramatic enough. Because I feel like every chapter of The Count of Monte Cristo metaphorically ends with him shaking his fist at the sky and screaming, Revenge! 
<laughs> and every movie should have that. I've never seen the American TV show Revenge, but it's like I, it's billed as an adaptation. Although from what I can see, it's I guess like spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in the first season, and then it was pretty. Cl- I gave up on the show after sometime in the middle of the second season. Um, it was pretty clear that they're like, we don't actually have a end plan if the show keeps going, so we're just going to keep making some shit up. <laughs> Which is the problem with some of these high-concept shows, is we're like, okay, we're going to do the kind of Monte Cristo. What happens if you keep going? I don't know. We only planned for one season because we figured we'd get cancelled. You know how I describe Count of Monte Cristo if somebody hasn't seen it? Imagine The Great Gatsby if it actually had a great mystery and plot behind it and it didn't turn out that he was just pining for a girl. <laughs> Less laden metaphors. Because the Count of Monte Cristo sweeps into town and he's fabulously rich and everybody's clamoring to go to his parties and they don't know that he's, serious, that he's secretly out to kill all of them. Literally all of them. There's five people in all of Paris as usual. Mm. Everybody who's wronged him has ended up somehow successful and also interconnected to each other. Oh, could you imagine the Baz Luhrmann version of the County of Monte Cristo? <laughs> well, the parties I would be fabulous. It. I want it. I want that. I want that. Somebody, somebody, call up Baz and tell him we'll start. I want that. <laughs> okay, but important question: Which musical genre shall serve as the backdrop to the entire thing? All of them. All of them. Can we at least get like a Lin Manuel Miranda show out of this? Yes. Oh yes. Oh yes. Hundred percent yes. The first episode, I think the first, maybe the first ever episode of well known uh, of Murder She Wrote. I remember having a Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, well, theme is wrong, but like the the main murderer calling himself at Mont at a costume party gives her the idea of who committed the murder. I want to say it was the first, but I know it was definitely an episode of Murder, She Wrote. No, please. We all know that she was just the greatest hitman of all time. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole the whole series is her getting revenge on people who no one realized had wronged her. <laughs> and her multiple nephews and nieces. Yes. The TV, the Back to the Musketeers, the BBC TV show already kind of used the Man in, the, man in the Iron Mask plot on a plot that kind of didn't exist in the book. Like they kind of caught the, the secret twin brother kind of thing mm-hmm. already happened. And the last movie adaptation, I know that specifically adapts that was the, the American one we talked about. I Like in a weird way, I think a lot of people would just even assume it was a separate book altogether. I think a lot of people do. I know I kind of did. Like, cause the musketeers just seem kind of thrown in and unnecessary, don't they? Yeah. I wonder if people like, if, you know, we're talking about the next adaptations coming up of, they, they, they can just, like, take chunks out. These are big books. I suppose The Men in Iron Mask is the most interesting chunk to take out of it, to adapt, because it's got that intrigue and the... Nobody does Mazarin as, like, the Mazarin bit other than the Russian movie that I've saw. Everybody just kind of stops with Richelieu. Do the Musketeers trying to kill Milady's son? Like, that's an interesting bit. Do better adaptations. There's so much more there for you. Do it. 
This all seems like a lot of work when you could just have good-looking people fighting each other with swords. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's one of the things about these kinds of modern Hollywood major television adaptations we get of public domain work. It's really strip it down to the the barest, if not even essence of the story, but the most understandable even to idiots form of it. So Dracula is vampire kills people, you know? Frankenstein is crazy scientist brings someone back to life. This is nothing to do with politics or strategy. It's just, hey, sword fight. Yeah. And there's nothing necessarily bad with that. You can make some really good stuff out of that. I think it just it's a case of we don't trust audiences enough to go any deeper with this. Or we just can't be bothered. I mean, to be fair, I think any actual serious adaptation does run into a kind of morality disconnect at this point. Like, if Con- Constance is married in the novel and most of, like adaptations will try to make her husband abusive or find other ways to justify her relationship with D'Artagnan, you know? Mm-hmm. At some point, I wonder, just make her not married. Like, it's easy. If you if you feel like it'll distract viewers from their love being so pure and true, then there's, I guess, kind of the indiscriminate amount of killing the musketeers do. <laughs> but that's okay, because they're the good guy. Okay. Like, you shouldn't have... I mean, you shouldn't worry about that too much if you're a studio person. Look at all the police procedurals that are on TV that... There's quite a lot of indiscriminate killing going on there, too. Mm-hmm. And there's never any sort of therapy or administrative leave or anything. I mean, look at Hawaii Five-0. We That's love it. That's exactly what I was thinking of. <laughs> the amount of bodies they drop on a Why weekly basis. Why does anyone go to Hawaii? Like... <laughs> so you're saying that we need a weekly procedural where the musketeers are detectives in yes. the modern day? Yes. yes. <laughs> Do it. I mean... BBC didn't do that because they did go for, like, arc villains and such, but somebody should. Just weekly procedurals, I think that's perfect. Look, people just want them to be pretty and and, and fight and and swashbuckle a little bit around 17th century. 17th? Yeah, 17th. Yep. 17th century, France. Find a castle. That that is the main... Find a really good castle to film in. (laughs) So yeah, the BBC show returns at some unspecified time. They they have I haven't found a, a, a date now that it hasn't happened in January. But the first two seasons are on Netflix in North America, probably some also in the UK. Sorry, we didn't look it up, but should be available on various streaming services. I we do highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. You can't argue with the pretty in that one, and it's it's not bad. Like it's pretty well done. Like it. It's kind of did what we just talked about. It dispenses with the book where it needs to dispense with it and just has fun. Yep. The various movies. Well, the 2011 should be available in various on demands and probably... And if nothing else, you can get it from Amazon on DVD for like $5. Yeah. Disney one's probably a little harder to find at this point. It's, it's been a while. Uh, the Russian one is, just like all the Russian movies, fully available on YouTube. I, I might post some links just to the um, the songs <laughs> in the show notes. You should do that. <laughs> so people can see. All right. So this wraps it up. 
links to various movies in the show notes. Feel free to tweet us with your favorite versions if you have one. Or to tweet us to say that you checked out the BBC show and uh, we were right about how pretty it is. Mm -hmm. Because we are. We are happy to be your purveyors of pretty. Mm. That's what we're here for. Oh, oh. uh, So we do have time to do a tiny bit of housekeeping now that we wrapped up the main show. And do... Well, the particular I was thinking, do we want to talk about uh, the American Gods casting? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> this is really exciting for Brits because we best know Ricky Whittle, who's been cast as Shadow in American Gods, as the, one of the stars of the soap opera Hollyoaks. Hollyoaks is basically our equivalent of a CW show. It's full of very pretty young people and their problems. He also came second in his season of Strictly Come Dancing, which is the UK version of Dancing with the Stars. So if you go on YouTube, you can find him in tight shirts doing the rumba. Hey. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you, Britton. He's better known in America as Lincoln on the 100. Mm. Yes. This This was casting news that made all of the 100 fans I know, all three of them, Squeal with happiness. The, the moment it came out, I was tweeting at Maya, uh, just calling like, you need to check Neil Gaiman's tweet. And then we kind of just squeed at each other for a bit. It is such a damn good piece of casting as well, just in terms of how I always imagined that character looked. And hey, mm-hmm. no whitewashing. So here's the very stupid racist kerfuffle that happened. Immediately, the racist of Twitter united to tweet in, that, why would you cast that character as black? That, that, that is PC madness. I always imagined him as white. My brain hurts. And, and Neil Gaiman had to get on Twitter and be like, I don't know what you guys were reading or smoking, but he's always been black. Yeah. There is, the, the book does not only speaks to his ethnicity explicitly once. In the very beginning, a prison guard tries to provoke him by flinging racial slurs at him that imply that he's dark-skinned and maybe somewhat ambiguously biracial. Mm-hmm. Right? So, casting Ricky Whittle is, like, perfect. <laughs> and that that is the only time in the book where the racists of Twitter, well, of the world, seem to have latched onto the fact that, I mean, his, his, the, his father is revealed later in the book is, I mean, most likely a white man, physically a white man, right? Mm. But that... Let me tell you about multiracial marriages that is, uh, like, you know par- people sleep with people of other ethnicities this is a thing what? that happens real <laughs> what i don't know maybe these people haven't heard of loving v virginia like maybe they're like 50 years out of date uh, they've just made a film about that it stars joel edgerton and ruth nega i haven't actually heard that they made a film oh. So this, this piece of casting is great we approve and the racist twitter kerfuffle was one of the stupidest in recent memories. That is the only big casting news coming out of the show. We're still really looking forward to the show. I kind of wish we'd, we'd be hearing more about casting. I'm really curious who they're getting for everybody else. Burn Fuller, we miss you. Come back to us. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have to talk about the other gig he's just landed. Oh, yeah. <sighs> it's all we've ever wanted. <laughs> Tell the people, Kaylee. Tell them. I will. I will. Brian Fuller's doing Star Trek! 
Yay! I mean, yes, everything comes back. This has all happened before and this will all happen again. I know, I know, I know, and I don't disagree with you. But... (laughs) Okay, so this is the new Star Trek series that CBS are doing. They plan to make it exclusive to their online streaming service. I don't think that's going to stick. I think it would be really stupid of them to do that. No, it is really CBS's streaming service is terrible. And they have like an iPad app, but the advantage of Netflix is that I can watch it on my smart TV. Mm-hmm. And I am not quite technologically savvy enough to figure out how to do that, do CBS on my TV. Which makes me not want to watch things on the CBS app. And I'm not a dumb technology person. So if I can't figure it out. I mean, people shouldn't have to, you know, connect their PCs to their TVs to HDMI, possibly having to remodel the living room to do that yeah. just to watch a streaming service. That's not. It's just come don't, on. don't do that. See, that's the thing. There are now so many different streaming services and stuff available. I've. I think it would be really foolish of CBS to try and dip their toes into that market, particularly with the service that they have, which by all accounts is not very good. So I maintain at some point between now and when the show finally airs, I know they're going to show the pilot on TV and then hope everyone flocks to streaming service. I think they'll make it exclusive to the channel because it would just be stupid of them not to. Uh They're not like NBC, you know, they're not that daft. So I think that they will eventually bring it to TV, just because. You know, I mean, I keep saying they're not stupid, but you know, maybe they, yeah. they are. Yeah, your faith in humanity is stronger than mine. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been joking for years, basically since we started watching Hannibal, that Brian Fuller should do Star Trek because he used to work on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. He was a writer on Deep Space Nine, and I believe he was an executive producer and writer on Voyager. You can look up all of his episodes, and you can look up tons of pictures of him dressed in a Starfleet uniform, because of course. So he'd been talking for years about wanting to head up uh, a Star Trek program, and how the the new movies got in the way of pitching it and stuff, so it probably wasn't going to happen. But he said his dream captain choice would be Angela Bassett. And Rosario Dawson. And Rosario Dawson would be the lieutenant, or yeah? The first officer? First officer, yeah. yeah. So now, think back to when Star Wars came out and all those sad little racist misogynists on the internet who thought that The Force Awakens was proof that political correctness had gone mad and they were trying to wipe out straight white men from their entertainment. Um, how they were going to boycott this and this is all terrible. Think about what's going to happen when Brian Fuller starts casting that show. The guy who regularly changes the races and genders of characters. To make them less white and make them less whale. They are not going to be happy with this. And I can't wait. (laughs) There is one other possible piece of casting for a captain that was suggested on Tumblr that I also really like. And that was Brian Fuller has worked with Gina Torres. That's my choice. Mm. I don't know if Suits is still ongoing or like what the film is scheduled for that. But I don't care. Make that happen. Okay, here's what I want, right? Gina Torres is captain. And Raul Esparza as first mate... But, like, in full Shatner mode, just constantly having his shirt torn off. <laughs> and being bisexual, because, obviously. 
just think of how many sad little men with YouTube accounts that would piss off. <laughs> I don't think Brian Fuller should you know, commandeer his entire career with that explicit purpose, but I kind of do. <laughs> Particularly for that one awful, awful person on YouTube who made a video claiming that feminism was ruining Hannibal. Oh, God. I don't even know what's up with that. The, the entire argument seemed to be feminism is ruining Hannibal because women like this show. Oh, you're 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 so fragile, you poor sweet summer child. I'm actually really excited about new Star Trek on TV. Like it's, I, I like having a Star Trek on TV. There's always been, there should always be a Star Trek on TV. Particularly since Brian Fuller has said that he really wants to make the show fun again. He doesn't want it to be so self serious. Mm. So, like, if it does get elements of the Six Days one where there are daft moments, I would really like that. It would be nice to watch a Brian Fuller show where I am not just in constant emotional anguish. <laughs> as much as I enjoyed that emotional anguish, I really did. I just think the thing about Star Trek that always kind of bothered me a little bit is that it's always, and I get that it's kind of a budget reason thing, but it's very human centric despite the Federation. But the captains are always human and things like that so i really would love a star trek where a lot of them you know the bridge cast are various alien races just to show maybe even the captain not being human i think would actually be pretty great so but i get that that's a lot of well how many time how many hours can the actor spend in makeup and hopefully maybe the technology progressed where that's more doable this time i guess we'll see i'm so excited (laughs) (laughs) It was just nice to get what I wanted for a change. Because <laughs> let's be honest, we all thought it was going to be Kurtzman and Orkey that were doing it. And I think Alex Kurtzman is still working with Brian Fuller on this, but not with the 9-11 conspiracy theorist guy, so it's okay. Well, I mean, it wouldn't have been Kurtzman and Orsi because remember, they got divorced. Did they really? Yes, they, they've consciously uncoupled from each other <laughs> in their professional capacity. Because I know that Orsi was supposed to be directing the third Star Trek movie despite having no directorial experience and then it went to Justin Lin from the Fast and Furious series I have a lot of hope and optimism and just excitement for this I hope CBS reversed their stupid decision in terms of broadcasting all they had to do was look at the reaction particularly from critics as well as fans on the showrunner announcement to know okay we actually have something in our hands here I have no idea how Brian Fuller is going to fit into his day, just all of this work. Mm. But I'm glad that he's, you know, suddenly really popular after years of making shows that nobody watched and all got cancelled. But everybody liked. Yeah. I mean... Like, the the 12 people that watched them liked it. I mean, I'm I'm honestly... I'm at peace with Hannibal. Yeah. And I... I'm at a place where I'm like, well, we got two more seasons than we ever expected... And three more seasons of a great show than we ever expected. So. Not going to complain. So I'm not going to complain. I am content with where it ended. Because Fuller was always smart enough to end each season on a place where you would be emotionally satisfied. And yet it still had somewhere to go if a miracle occurred. And we got a miracle twice. Yeah, it's true. I don't want to get all Firefly fan about it, you know? Right, exactly. Like, That's the nightmare. God. God, no. Especially since, to be fair, we got so much more than Firefly fans, so I... Yes. Yes, and we don't have anyone on our show that has made us 
want to never watch it again, Adam Baldwin. <laughs> God, he's the worst. The actual worst. But I get mad at him on behalf of so many of my friends who struggle to watch Firefly again because of him. Mm-hmm. This is a, the downside of celebrities being so accessible to us. Yep. Oh, no, no, I'm glad that he's accessible to us. I want to know who's a shit. I, I don't want to waste my time with fuckers like that. So at least I like being informed there. I mean, I'm not like a big, you know, huge Whedon fan. So Firefly didn't mean as much to me as it did to a lot of my friends. But, you know, he's a, you know, open gaping wound that I can live without amputate that shit oh on that happy note (laughs) (laughs) yeah get that put on a pillow Judy Dench would (laughs) alright well February is a short month so February episode is a bit of a short episode yep if you like Three Musketeers tweet at us if you're excited about uh, Star Trek or American Gods tweet at us if you want to tweet at us, tweet at us. It's fine. <laughs> if you don't want to tweet at us, then don't tweet at us. We're not going to tell you what to do. We're just asking. We're sort yeah, of telling you what to life. do. Right. I will see you all back here next month. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Anglophies, a made of fail production.